0: so beautiful here. For me...
1: Well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa?
0: It was heaven. Is is there a heaven? Oh,
1: yeah. It's the place dreams come true.
0: In Field of Dreams, Iowa is mistaken for heaven. In this case, it will be Idaho. I posit that for Alan Sackett, with mounting loan shark debt, having lost his job and his money-grubbing girlfriend, Barkley, Idaho, somehow lingering between past and present, is like a dreamland of the past. He is slightly enamored when he first sees SUNY again after 30 years. Fixing up his art store and selling it could help Alan in his debts. Seeing Suny's family store, the old soda fountain, and the town seems to have a settling effect on Alan Sackett. On a personal note, I've seen snippets of the old days, some in my hometown and some in other areas. There's a longing by all of us for the days past because of the slowed down pace as well as the hope for the future. Here is episode two... Downsized by Robert P. Fitton. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 6. Some young kid carried Alan's bag up the front walk of Mrs. Pillsbury's long, white rooming house. The large framed boy, maybe 14 or 15, easily glided up the farmer's porch steps, opened a screen door with his foot and disappeared inside. Allan traced his steps and pulled open the door. McGowan had told him as they pulled up in the Lincoln that Mrs. Pillsbury was cooking and baking. On a worn wood kitchen table were several loaves of fresh bread and some chocolate chip cookies on ceramic plates. His bags were deposited next to the staircase near the busy kitchen. To his right, a pleated shade illuminated an older bald man reading a book and smoking a pipe. More books and a briefcase were on a polished antique table. Afternoon, he said, gazing up from the book. Afternoon. You're here to sell the general store. As a matter of fact, I am. He shook his head and looked back at the book. Then he gazed up from his glasses. Another bit of history crumbles to the dust. Alan shrugged his shoulders as a hefty woman with long strands of thick gray hair Wiped her hands on a rosy apron as she entered the hallway. Charlie said you'd be here. You must be Alan Sackett. I am he. Well, look at you, she said, nodding and studying him. Do we know each other? I wasn't Mrs. Pillsbury then. I was Nora Pratt. I knew your aunt and uncle. Nora? Alan smiled as she quickly wrapped her arms around him. Alan pictured a tall slim girl in her 20s with jet black hair. "'Now you're Mrs. Pillsbury.' "'I am. "'And you finally came back. "'I told people that boy will come back here someday.' "'Goosebumps appeared on his arms. "'Actually, I'm only here for a short time.' "'The man reading quickly looked back to his book. "'I know, you have to sell Amanda's store. "'Sad day. "'Just another notch against the way things used to be. "'I know the rooming house has two-thirds empty. "'You heard about I.C.' I see. International circuits. They left. Oh, yeah. I saw the plant when I came in. That killed Amanda's store. Oh, it's still open for business, but it's not the same place when you were a little boy buying baseball cards. She motioned him into a huge kitchen. Pots boiled on the heavy black stove, and a younger girl, not surprisingly bearing a resemblance to the kid who carried his luggage, removed another cookie sheet from the oven. I'm giving you the room right off the kitchen, Alan. Well, let me get my bags. Alan turned and picked up two of the cases. No, no, Robert can get the bags. Bob, Bob. She leaned toward the hall. Oh, he's gone outside again. Alan followed her, bags in hand, toward the white panel door down the end. A small bathroom with dark wallpaper abutted the entrance. Now there are pluses and minuses with the bathroom being outside your door. Oh? Well, if you need to use it in the middle of the night, you don't have to go wandering throughout the house. However, everyone else in the house uses it, so you might hear it flush at 2 a.m. Oh, that's okay. Nara pushed open the bedroom door and Alan followed her inside. A sweet herbal smell, probably from the eucalyptus leaves strung in a wall arrangement, inundated the room. The soothing blue wallpaper and taffeter lampshades made him remember the perfect summer again. Nara pulled up the blinds and pushed the heavy white window up. A gust of fresh air swept the room. This is great, said Alan, removing his wallet. With the credit cards buried in a lower slot, he slid out an American Express card with a new $10,000 ceiling. Nara's eyes locked onto the gold card. She smiled nervously, turning down the corners of her mouth. Alan, I'm sorry we don't take credit cards here. For a moment, he felt panic in his stomach, but he also knew he had enough cash to last a few weeks. No problem. Let me give you a week's... Uh, she held his wrist. We don't worry about payment here until services have been rendered. You can settle with me when you're ready to leave. Well, that's really nice of you, Nora. Only in Berkeley. This isn't the big city. You'll start to feel that again, too. I already have. I already have. Good, good. Listen! she said, holding his wrist. I'll serve dinner around five. It's all homemade and prepared during the afternoon. You relax and unwind for a bit, and we'll talk about the old times during that summer. Thanks. It's good to be back. Well, they say you can't go back, Alan, but I've got a secret, she leaned and whispered in his ear. You can. Alan hugged her, and she jaunted back through the doorway, closing it slowly. Without the air conditioning, Alan was hot. He quickly stripped out of his shirt and pants and put on shorts and a lighter sports jersey. When he grabbed his cell phone from the suitcase and pushed in Bryant's number, nothing happened. Static crackled in the earpiece, and the LED readout kept flashing no service. I am not surprised. His belly full, Alan stepped onto the front porch. The bald man with the pipe sat in a slatted wooded chair... Alan gazed across the street behind the brick town hall to a wide open area with green bleacher stands around an infield. When the public address announcer echoed the starting lineups over the street, Alan sensed a long lost camaraderie. You going to the game? The man pulled out his pipe and peered through the wire rimmed glasses. At supper, he hadn't said much. Baseball's a game for the young. Then be young. I'm Alan Sackett, he said, shaking his hand. The man had a firm grip. Jacob Rothstein. Alan gazed down at an architecture book. You like to read. Comes with being a professor of history for 40 years. Where did you teach? I taught at Princeton. I came up here after my wife died two years ago. I was on a long trip around the western U.S. and found Barclay to be a unique place. Look, they even have fall baseball. Alan looked up Southeast Street, where it joined at Main Street and the highway at Town Hall. Well, there's not much happening up here. Young man, Barclay is rich in history. History is something that never happened, written by a man who wasn't there. Anonymous. I like that quote, and you're you're probably right. Jacob turned the book pages abruptly as if Alan had committed a great sacrilege. Well, I'm going to go to the baseball game now, but I would enjoy learning about the history of Barclay, Professor. Jacob looked up when Alan called him Professor. Congratulations, young man. You're the first person up here who actually asked about the history of this town and put me in my place. He raised his index finger. I'll take you up on that request, and remember, I tolerate no slackers in my classes. Okay, Professor. Now go to your game. Jacob waved him off and went back to his book. Alan half-grinned as he moved down the steps and thought about Nora's reminiscing at the dinner table. Nora had a way of telling a story as if it happened a few hours ago. Savoring the thick roast and mashed potatoes, Alan was treated to a description of his aunt's general store. Now, as he moved under the colorful spreading trees toward the street, he thought back to images of shelves lined with dry goods and humming wall coolers containing dairy products. Uncle Ned sold farm fertilizer and feed and supplies from the back stockroom. Men backed up their trucks to a long concrete dock facing the cornfield. Alan checked Southeast Street, lined with cars for the ball game, and crossed slowly. Nora had described Aunt Amanda's racing around the store helping customers. Late at night, by a single hurricane lamp in the second floor domicile, she would pay the bills and order more goods. Everything came by mail then. No computers, emails, and sometimes a phone call for a special order, usually for Uncle Ned and his farm supplies. As he stepped between cars and onto the grass, Alan scanned the bleacher seats. Nara had first brought up Suni's name during a conversation about her family's clothing store downtown, one of the few businesses still performing well. Suni alternated duties between the clothing store and watching a Mrs. Hennessy at the general store since Aunt Amanda died in June. Alan glided across the grass toward the back of the bleachers and grinned. He wanted to see the ten-year-old who had shared that summer with him. With the crack of the bat, the crowd stood. One of the outfielders ran back toward the green wood slat fence and made a running catch under the light tower. Round the bleachers, through the chain-link fence backstop, a smooth brown clay bordered the infield grass and bright white-lined foul lines met at the batter's boxes next to home plate. The pitcher released the ball and, with a whiz and cut the warm fall air. With a mighty swing, the batter missed, and the rotund umpire yelled as loud as the public address system. Strike! Allen folded his arms and lingered behind the backstop and continued to pin the colorful crowd. Hey, mister! He looked over his shoulder. A little kid, maybe the same age he was when he was last back here, banged his fist into his leather-worn mitt. A scuffed white baseball lay next to his dirty sneakers. You want to pass? Me? Yeah, my dad's late. Alan glanced at the game. They'd just walked the batter. Looked back at the kid's protruding teeth and curly brown hair. Years had passed since he picked up a ball. Sure. Kid's face brightened. He grasped the ball, cocked his arm, and released a fastball with respectable velocity. Alan moved out of the way, and the ball pinged against the backstop. (laughs) It's been a long time, kid. Alan hadn't played since college. He ran over and retrieved the ball. Some guy to his left chucked a first baseman's glove end over end through the dusk light. Alan caught it in midair. The guy saluted and went back to watching the game. Alan hurled the ball a little high, but the kid leaped up to his right and pulled it down. This time, Alan caught the kid's sizzler in the webbing. He had forgotten the feeling of capturing the ball. He grasped the red intertwining threads with his first two fingers and lifted the ball to his nose. The raw cowhide, mixed with dust and grass, sent his senses back over the years. He snapped his arms, and seconds later, the ball was squarely in the kid's glove. The continuous banter behind the backstop went uninterrupted for several minutes until the opposing team from Bethel, Montana was retired. Allen, not having thrown for many years, waited for his arm to tighten. You play ball? asked the kid, his voice hadn't yet changed. Yeah, I used to play. Thought so. He crunched his nose and tested Allen with a grounder. Alan's knee moved toward the grass, and in a maneuver tucked away deep in his brain, his glove defended the ground as the ball whipped back hundreds of shortened grass blades. It shot into his glove, he scooped it out and blazed it back to the kid. The kid seemed impressed and took the play to the next level. "'What's your name?' "'Alan.' "'I'm Ben.' He lobbed the ball this time, as if Alan had passed some kind of initiation test. "'You came in that limo!' "'Yeah.' Alan threw him a fly ball, but Ben ran with his glove out and tried to one-hand it. The ball popped out and landed on the grass. Two hands, Ben. Two hands. Huh? Alan ran forward, holding his glove up and to his left. He brought his right hand back to the pocket. Capture the ball. Capture it. Give me another one. He threw the ball underhand, and Alan caught it with his bare hand. In a single motion, he pitched it upward. The threads tumbled in the artificial light as the ball was pulled back down to earth. Ben brought his glove up close to his shoulder and swung over his right hand, capturing the ball in the glove pocket. A crescent moon smile formed across his face and he held the glove in the air. Alan smiled too as a loud motorcycle slowed on Southeast Street. Ben's smile dropped and he faced the street. A heavy man in a belly-round black t-shirt and cigarette stuck in his lips parked his motorcycle. Ben's young eyes were glossy and fixed as he kept smashing the ball into his glove. Dad, you're late. We had to finish painting that Chevron from Cornersville. The father's eyes were bloodshot, lids hung heavy and he moved with a jerky motion. He looked at Alan with the glove. Who the hell are you? Me? I don't see nobody else standing around playing catch with my son. He said you'd be late, so I... Ball game's over there, partner. He looped his arm around his son's smaller frame and marched him toward the fence. When they were near the fence, the father shook his finger repeatedly at Ben. His voice boomed out in bits and pieces as Ben slumped down. Alan pounded the first baseman's mitt. A cop with a buzz cut moved along the backstop and stopped next to Alan. What a bully. He looked into Alan's blue eyes. What, the motorcycle guy? Yeah, Tug Sadler. Bad influence on that kid. Hey, you're Alan Sackett. You don't remember me, do you? Has to be from the summer I was up here. Tug was still shouting at Ben as he climbed onto the motorcycle. George Gavin. Georgie Porgie. Alan smiled and put his hand on the policeman's shoulder. Georgie Porgy Gavin. I'll be. I haven't seen you in 30 years. I heard you came back about your aunt's store. So how's it feel to be back in God's country? You know, it beats the pace I'm used to. "'You know, that was a great summer,' said Georgie Porgy. "'It's like we did everything that summer, more than we did in ten summers. "'I kept asking Amanda when you'd be coming back, but we never saw you again.' "'Georgie Porgy's radio, attached to his belt, hissed and crackled. "'Someone summoned him across town, and he excused himself, "'but he asked where Alan was staying and said he'd call. "'To his left, Ben straddled the large motorcycle seat. "'Tug revved the engine.' Ben gripped the seat edges and they spun down Southeast Street. The kid seemed scared. Allen shook his head and wandered through the gate toward the stands. With the crack of the bat, one of the hometown boys grounded into a double play and the inning ended. Allen climbed the bleacher seats and found an elevated position next to the support crossbars on the opposing team's side. The perch provided him an excellent view of the lights coming on in the town, the older houses on the highway, back to a town and the railroad tracks beyond the town's brick elementary school in the center of town. Woods obscured the cornfield and onto Manda's store down the highway as darkness fell. Alan, said a man with dark wavy hair, dressed precisely in beige Bermuda shorts and a red sports shirt. He stood behind the bleachers next to a shorter man with a gray crew cut. Alan smiled because he didn't recognize him. I know I met you guys when I was back here. The guy in the short stepped forward and shielded his hand over his eyes. You knew one of us. Hershey was always filling his brain with something. The dark eyes seemed remotely familiar. Kenny Baines? The man wins for his prize, Hershey. How are you, Alan? Well, I'm fine. Come on up. Once in the stands, Alan shook hands and they sat down to watch the game. Hershey talked briefly about the store and the low market value. Kenny was more articulate, soft-spoken, and as president of the bank, probably worked closely with Hershey. As the innings progressed, the overhead light towers brightly illuminated the grass expanse below. Allen renewed his friendship with Kenny. In the bottom of the sixth, Barkley rallied for two runs to tie the game as Kenny talked about the old swimming hole. Allen, I haven't been up there since my kids were little. How many kids? Two, Kenny Jr. and Annie. Eight and nine. Do you remember Jill McGowan? Related to Charlie, my father-in-law. Oh, so you brought the kids back to the swimming hall. Oh, you know the old routine. Show them every place Dad used to frequent. Bore them into never returning and then satisfying your own desire to be young again. Second childhood, said Hershey. That's why he coaches Little League. Nothing wrong with that, said Alan. I did see kids playing on that old ball field behind Aunt Amanda's store. Yeah, Suni's kids play up there. Her girl was as good as the boy. She's outgrown playing baseball. Alan tried to picture those kids and the image of the 10-year-old Suni rocketed into his head. Well, Suni could chuck the ball, too. I heard she's taking care of the store since Aunt Amanda died. Let me tell you something, Alan. When Suni was 11, she used to wait by the train station all that summer long. She said you were coming back. Amanda finally had a talk with her inside the station. Alan tilted his head. His longing for the good old days mixed generously with the warm feelings for Suni. He gazed back at the blazing light towers toward the highway and imagined her waiting at that station. I want to see Suni again. Everyone sprang to their feet and screamed. Alan saw the tail end of a high fly ball sailing down from the darkness as it cleared the left field fence. Barclay had just gone ahead. Hershey shouted over the roar of the crowd, "You need to look at that store anyway before you sell." And her kids, I'd like to meet her kids too. Well, she's usually over there in the morning to check on Mrs. Hennessy. Listen, why don't we meet there around ten? Said Hershey. Are you really gonna sell? Alan's thoughts were shaken back to Roscoe, the outstanding credit card bills, and his other debts. Tomorrow, we'd have to call Graybar and some other companies from a land phone. Alan, you look like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. I guess it's just tough selling the old place. Even tougher is getting a lower-than-usual price, said Hershey. Alan walked from Kenny's old Victorian north of the school. After a couple of toasts to old times, he was tired and ready for sleep. From the elementary school steps, Main Street cut a lonely line back to Town Hall. His aunt was gone, and he'd only really known her once that summer, yet he could hear her smooth voice as he ran across the street to the post office. Watch your step, Alan. Your mother writes every week. The letter will be in my box. Again, he rushed up the steps and peered inside the glass doors. A single fluorescent light lit the front counter. In the dimmer light were dozens of brass post office boxes, numbers indiscernible behind the tiny glass rectangles. Number 724. He turned slowly, lips pursed as he sunk back to the sidewalk. On the drugstore's brick facade, a blue plastic telephone sign glowed in the darkness. Without his cell phone working, now would be a good time to call Brian. A few cars passed as he marched to the phone. He dropped in a quarter and then punched in Brian's number and his own calling card. As the line connected, he peered inside the drugstore. Two auxiliary spotlights shined over a soda fountain, counter, and stools. Hello? Brian, this is Alan. Uh, A.B.
1: A.B.? Where are you? You on your mobile?
0: No. Yeah, she did act stupid.
1: She gave me another voicemail number and wants you to call her.
0: Alan listened to the new extension as he studied each and shelf inside the drugstore. He grinned when he saw the magazine section where he and some of the boys used to sneak looks at the new Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue.
1: And A.B., the people I know, said Roscoe made all the arrangements, got you what you needed. They want to know why you left town. They're watching you with all that money floating out there. Don't play games with these people. You haven't bolted away somewhere,
0: have you? Alan held the receiver and looked across the street at the wooden movie house. He had seen the film Black Letters Darkened on the Marquee over a year ago. Hey, Brian, I haven't bolted anywhere. I'll be back in town in less than two weeks. Just had to get away for a while. You tell that to your friends.
1: I wouldn't call them my friends. I had to go through five levels of people and a lot of favors to bail you out. What about Graybar?
0: Looks good, and so do three other companies. I'm not worried. Yet.
1: A.B., don't talk like that. I can see them coming back to
0: me and demanding money. Alan thought it might be nice to take in a movie, maybe with Kenny and his wife. He spun back toward the drugstore. Well, that won't happen.
1: Just want to know where you are, A.B. What's the big secret?
0: I'll get back to you, Brian, and tell Melinda thanks for the vote of confidence. He hung up the phone, but as he stared at the chrome digits... He was certain that his friend would now install a caller ID on the phone line. He would have to correspond with Brian in a different way. He was about to continue down the sidewalk when he noticed Suni's family clothing store. Next to the movie theater, spanning five sections of window glass sheets, within a white brick facade, the store was fully stocked with clothing racks. The building boarded the town's fire department and was diagonally across from the town hall. Allen meandered across Main Street, past the parking meters, to the opposite sidewalk. At one time, music would play in the evening when Main Street shops were still in business. Couples perused the windows and children chased each other behind the lamppoles. But a vacant desertion now existed, a remnant of another era, before the plant moved overseas. Benson's clothing store endured hard times, he thought, as he peered in the window and saw none of the discount goods imported regularly through the Lambert's chain. A sweep across the dim light revealed a Made in America label, Boy Scout and Girl Scout uniforms, and a clean overall appearance. He pictured Suni, the little girl from the past, now a mother and probably running around the store. In the night air, far away in rural Idaho, Alan stared at his dim reflection. He looked relaxed and sensed a wonderment at the slower way of life was baffled how he ever had allowed his personal affairs to get so out of control. Downsized by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 7 A brown taxi, proportioned like a World War II tank, approached the curb in front of Mrs. Pillsbury's rooming house. Alan looked at Jacob, reading on the front porch. "'What's the subject today, Professor?' The silver loads of the western United States and a few local articles, contemporary raw data from the time the strike was here in town. I remember the mine, but there was really a strike? 1915 it lasted all of 19 months. The Gatlin family made a fortune. Unfortunately, they only stayed in town a short time. The taxi driver beeped his horn. I think I'm being paged. Leave some of that reading on my bed, Professor. I think the more you know about a place, the greater appreciation you have. Well put, Alan, said Jacob as he stood and applauded. Well put. Alan smiled and scurried down the front walk. He quickly slid inside the taxi. Sorry about that, Mr. Jerry Hardy. Just call me Hardy. Everyone else does. They always have. In the front mirror, Hardy's blue eyes peered out the brim of his Stetson, and his silver-plated neck clip glistened in the sun. I know your aunt very well, Alan. She sat in the seat you're sitting in quite a bit during the last few years. A remarkable woman. Hardy looked over his shoulder as his radio crackled and he pulled out. He turned to the town hall and started up the highway out of town. She was the genuine article. Not many people the genuine article. Everyone always wants to make themselves to be more important because they don't feel important inside. Your aunt had this inner peace and was sharp at the same time. Alan nodded as they approached a row of aging houses. Ah, oh, they let these places go. These houses were well kept when you were here as a kid. I remember that. Alan stared at the uneven shutters, peeling paint and sagging asphalt roof shingles as they rolled down the highway. There's no power base here. People are stuck. Oh, they sure as hell didn't care about people who worked in the plant all those years. You work for some conglomerate, don't you, Alan? Well, I uh, don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. These big companies are concerned about one thing. Profitability? Yeah, you got it there, buckaroo. Well, that's the way it is, Hardy. It may not be fair to those who get squeezed, but the beast has to survive. The beast? I like that. Alan surprised himself by his own lack of anger or vindictiveness toward Archer and Lambert's. The first cornfield's dried stalks were occasionally stirred by a rogue wind gust. Hardy's blinker pop and the brown Chevy Caprice turned onto the dirt road. With his head out the window, Alan thought he was back 30 years, rumbling down the bumpy dirt road over the railroad tracks. Along the cornfield, the taxi dipped, and Aunt Amanda's and Uncle Ned's general store appeared across the harvested cornfield. The red clapboards had faded to a chalky pink, and the black signs' once-gold letters were traced with shaky white paint. He swallowed once. Hardy brought the taxi across the dusty parking lot, wedged between the dirt road and the diagonal tracks. The weathered supports and the covered blue tarps across the porch contrasted what he had remembered. The red and white Coke machine next to the front screen door was gone, and so was the varnished wood bench bordering the other side. Uncle Ned used to sell rakes, shovels and racks of flowers and seeds. Push and power mowers and pallets of grass seed, as well as lime, were stacked along the base of the porch. Alan turned to Hardy. This is not the same place. Amanda used to say the same thing. Alan pulled a ten from his wallet, but remember what McGowan had said about being a big spender. How much do I owe you, Hardy? Two bucks. Two bucks. Alan put the ten back in his wallet, fished out three single bills, and handed them to the taxi driver. Then he grasped the chrome handle and swung his legs into the sun as he stepped into the lot. The driver said something as Alan shut the taxi door and leaned in the window. You call my wife, Alan. If you need a ride back, she'll get me on a radio. Thanks. He stared at the L-shaped aging store and understood why Hershey Edwards did not promise a steep price. See you later there, Hardy. Hardy saluted and circled the taxi. Alan put his hands on his hips. Beyond the for sale sign, newspapers covered his aunt and uncle's second floor window. He would look up at the starry sky above the cornfields as a cavalcade of nighttime noises and armies of peepers and the chain reaction of barking dogs back toward town tempted his imagination. He would always listen carefully for the distant train blazing unseen up the steel tracks from Boise. On the days he played hard, he would sleep deeply as the freight train passed within a hundred feet of the store. On the nights when he was restless, he would catch the first whistle down at Carnerville, and then its strength grew in intensity as it moved in the darkness past the side roads toward Barkley. He could feel the house shudder once the whistle sounded near the lake. When he first arrived from the city, it scared him, but as the summer wore on, he anticipated it with great glee imagining the building shaken from its foundation as the train swept northward toward Canada. Hardy's taxi left a dusty residue in the morning air. Alan walked out to the faded gray porch deck. In the alcove between the house sections, Aunt Amanda regularly served picnic lunches on a shaved wood table. Sometimes Uncle Ned would cook hamburgers or steaks on a brick hearth. The hearth survived the years, but the table was gone. He moved briskly around back. The shipping dock, still firmly in place under the spreading trees, was covered by a patched, shingled roof. But with no customers, the outside storage sheds and stock tarps no longer existed. Alan moved out of the sun, and in the tree shade, he climbed the solid stairs onto the dock. Wiry, muscled men with sweat and slick tan skin would hoist hundred-pound bags of feed onto pallet stacks, The pale yellow plastic table radio would send out tunes into the morning and the Cubs and Cardinals games at night. An odd silence hung in the autumn air as he shuffled across the grit and crushed the empty Coca-Cola cans. Who the hell are you? Alan spun around. A thin woman with curled, steely hair and thick-rimmed blue glasses stood in the doorway next to the locked metal rolling door. You didn't used to be Alan Sackett, did you? I think I still am. Well, soon he will be happy to see you. I'm Mrs. Hennessy. I live above Albert's Drugstore downtown. I used to mix the orange ice cream sodas for you two after you went to the movies on Saturday afternoons. Alan's mouth slowly opened and broke into a full smile. He moved forward and shook her bony hand. Yeah, I remember those orange ice cream sodas. You work in the store now. What the hell do you think I'm doing here? Well, I, uh, we get a customer now and then. Suni should be coming by. His heart jumped. She usually comes out to see me during the morning or her afternoon break. Alan felt the same excitement when Suni's mother and father used to invite him to supper. She always wondered why you never came back. Well, here I am. Yeah, here you are, with a store that's falling apart and nobody wants to buy anything. O'Hershey well, seemed to think it will sell. Ah, yeah, Hershey's an inflated bag of hot air, Alan laughed as Mrs. Hennessy motioned him inside. The air reeked of aging oak shelves, and the stuffy storage room was draped with more blue tarps. Through the open doorway, the store shelves were stocked with bolts of fabric and some black-and-white boxes of tools, probably purchased twenty years ago, and an assortment of household supplies, some covered with dust, were stacked in red plastic bins to the wood-framed ceiling. Not like it used to be, said Mrs. Hennessy. Alan let his mind race back thirty years. He visualized a stockroom with neatly aligned covered boxes and a plethora of items for the house and the yard as well as perishable goods and a prodigious refrigerated cooler near his aunt's roll-top oak desk. Aunt Amanda's desk, Mrs. Hennessy smiled. She still used that even last spring. Does the train still come by here? I didn't hear it last night. Then you slept the sleep of the dead twice a week on Monday and Fridays. and Goes like hell, too. Somebody's going to get killed. Alan moved two steps across the creaky floorboards. Well, I look forward to hearing the train. The screen door sprung shut out front. Alan inched his way to the wood frame opening, separating the front of the store and the stockroom. The scant breeze across the cornfield, constricted by the screen door, was generated a welcome relief. A slender woman in beige shorts and an olive cotton jersey leaned against the cutting table with her index finger. She counted the fabric bolts. Her wispy blonde hair was held by a silver barrette and exposed her smooth, narrow neck. Mrs. Hennessy, we need more denim and maybe some muslin. Alan moved two steps across the creaky floorboards. Winter isn't far away. Maybe we should place a small order. I think you uh, might want to talk to the owner first, said Alan. She didn't turn, but her cheek muscles tightened. That's either Simon Legree or Alan Sackett. From 30 years past, his own rendition of his aunt's favorite old Al Jolson song called Swanee roared into his thoughts. Suni, how I love you, how I love you, my dear old Suni. She smiled when she turned. Alan shrugged his shoulders. I don't know how I remember that. We played all those old 78 records on the Victroller in the cabin. Some things never leave you. She moved away from the cutting table and put her arms briefly around him. Her touch was electric. She had a strong, trim body. Her moist green eyes were not remarkably different from the girl he knew. The boy who never returned. How are you, Suni? You look great. She smiled again as if he had said something remarkable. I can see the kid, yeah. I heard you went a long way from stocking shells with your Uncle Ned to Lambert's. Alan raised his brows, not wanting to detail what had happened with Lambert's. Well, it's a long way to Los Angeles. You were always so diplomatic, so well-mannered. What about the muslin and denim, dear? asked Mrs. Hennessy. She looked over Alan's shoulder. "'Yes, order it, Mrs. Hennessy. When she looked back, they both spoke at the same time and uttered the same words. "'That That was was one one great great summer." summer.' She laughed the same chirpy laugh with one eye half shut and her teeth protruding. Alan held her wrist, chuckling himself. Then they both spoke again. "'Frick and frack!' "'I don't believe this,' said Suni, rolling her eyes and tapping her forehead with the butt of her hand. Then she crossed her arms and looked toward Mrs. Hennessy. So, Suni, I hear you preside over the only viable store left in this town since the plant closed. Well, I don't know how viable it is. It certainly is one of the few remaining stores downtown. And I think of you every time I visit Lambert's in Boise. Well, that's out of my area. Frickin' frack. You know, I'm sorry I never came back up here, really. Well, number one, you're coming to dinner at my house back in town. We have a lot of reminiscing to do. I want you to meet my kids. Well, I would enjoy that. For The first time he looked around the store, trying to place the location of the soda pop cooler in the candy counter. The mezzanine was now stacked with fixtures and yellow sheets. Only one of the glass counters remained and was topped with a new digital register. Not the same, is it? she asked. Nah, not in here anyways. I see remnants all around. Like a big puzzle replaced with identical shaped pieces but with a new face. But some things were left behind. She nodded. Yeah, you must have seen that more vividly riding into town. The popsicles were over there, he said, pointing to the corner. Up top were the small tools, utensils, hard goods. You could get up there from Uncle Ned's stockroom and back. The baseball cards were in an aisle. The first aisle down the middle, said Sonny. You were a good ball player. We never had leagues. My daughter was a good player, but she lost interest in baseball and everything else, comes with being a teenager, and Ben still likes to play ball. Ben? Alan's mind flashed back to the motorcycle on Southeast Street and the kid throwing the baseball. My son, he plays Little League. Not a home run hitter, just hits the ball well. So how long do you have up here? Oh, a couple weeks until we sell. As a matter of fact, Hershey is on his way over here. Mrs. Hennessy grimaced and continued to write on a pad. But I want to thank you both for what you've done here since my aunt died. "'I intend to pay you for it.' "'Soonie he stuck her index finger in his chest. "'Then I won't be able to claim it as a good deed, will I?' "'I'll take the money,' said Mrs. Hennessy. "'Consider it done.' "'Allen knew he'd need every cent to pay down the credit balances. Seven o'clock, Allen,' said Soonie, opening her green eyes wide. "'And be prepared to eat. "'I do all the cooking, and if you don't eat it, "'I'll take it as a personal insult.' She's a damn good cook, Alan. I bet she is. Tell your kids and husband I look forward to meeting them. In her eyes, he saw a momentary hesitation. Alan had difficulty believing the guy on the motorcycle was Suni's husband, and he had not liked the way Ben was scolded. She hugged him again. Alan, thanks for coming back. I'll see you tonight. You need anything in town, Mrs. Hennessy? Maybe a couple of shots of bourbon. You have to understand Mrs. Hennessy's sense of humor. Good, good luck, said Mrs. Hennessy, nodding her head once. See you tonight, old friend, said Suni, hugging him again. Suni went out the screen door. She crossed the porch and scampered down the stairs. But when she reached her large, shiny blue pickup, she looked back at the store. Alan watched her slender legs in a way he had never had at age ten. She crawled into the driver's seat. The huge engine started and she backed around the lot. She spun around the dirt road and over the tracks to the main road. When she was ten, she had a crush on you. Let me tell you, Alan faced the older woman. Well, I always liked Suni too, Mrs. Hennessy. In fact, I think she still has a crush on you. Upstairs in the back stockroom, a single light bulb lit the mess, piled over the loft and down the small conveyor chute to the docks. Whatever was up here would probably have been thrown out once Alan sold the store. Alan, Hershey's here, called Mrs. Hennessy from below. I hear you, Mrs. Hennessy. Tell him I'll be right down. Alan looked at the myriad of calendars from an old tractor company, probably now defunct, stacked one on top of the other. He shut off the light and bounded down the springy stairboards. The silver-haired Hershey walked with two thin people equipped with notepads and pencils. With their pursed lips and squinty eyes, Alan surmised they were both trouble. Every word off Hershey's quick tongue was instantly transcribed onto the white paper. Alan, I want you to meet here with Mr. and Mrs. Tweeter from Ogden, Utah. They were passing through and saw my ad on Westy's Market shopping cart. They're looking to buy a store. Store? I want a store with some value, not just a shell of a building. This is one shell of a building, that's for sure, said Alan, laughing. But Tweeter never broke his stolid demeanor. What's the problem? The problem is it's overpriced, said Mrs. Tweeter. Well, just what do you think it's worth, asked Alan. No more than 20 grand replied tweeter then he wrote that figure on the pad i won't pay a penny more alan grinned and moved up to the smaller man no you won't tweeter 20 grand is an insult hershey's brown eyes stuck open take your little pad and go doodle somewhere else i can see why you have an agent there sir perhaps you should let him speak for you maybe you'll have a chance at selling this dump Tweeter looked at his red rouge wife and nodded. They started back to the front of the store, and Hershey trailed behind. Mr. Tweeter, please! My client's rudeness doesn't take away from the intrinsic value of the property! Alan raised his brows to Mrs. Hennessy and smiled. a boy, Alan. That Hershey is trying to make this place into the Taj Mahal. Then she held his wrist. And Tweeter was a pinhead. Amanda would be proud of you. She always called it like it was. Well, 20 grand is an insult. He exhaled and walked over to his aunt's roll top desk. The scratch baize plastic phone was buried in a stack of dusty paperwork. He sat in the creaky oak chair and heard Hershey move back through the store. Hey, Alan, I don't know how they handle things in Los Angeles, but I have a reputation to consider. Mrs. Hennessy crossed her arms and leaned forward. Yeah, maybe someday you'll consider it. Mrs. Hennessy, this is not your property. Hershey wiped his red face. He won't be back. Well, nothing lost, said Alan. I think the guy's done us a service by leaving. I'm sorry I insulted you, Hershey, but gee whiz, it's as if he were trying to pick our pockets. Oh, well, maybe you're right, said Hershey, wiping his glasses, and then he stuffed his handkerchief into his pants' pocket. I wouldn't deliberately try and ruin your sale. I'm just thinking all the time my aunt and uncle put into this place. I thought you were up here for cash, Alan. Alan pushed the oak chair back. The uneven casters were rough on the floorboards. He pressed his legs harder against the floor. The spring snapped and he careened over backwards with the top of the chair. Oh, dear God, you broke your butt. Alan smiled from the floor. I'm fine, Mrs. Hennessy, but let me tell you something from the bottom up, Hershey. We're going to sell this place, and we'll get top dollar. I've never been a pessimist, and I won't stop being cynical now. The situation is impossible, but it has possibilities. Samuel Goldwyn. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 8. Alan hadn't jogged for a week and thought he might feel sluggish, but the run in the outside air invigorated him. He visualized a repetitive 59th floor track overlooking the smoggy valley here every hill and corner was now a new experience and as the afternoon shadows fell he maintained a steady pace along the lake across the blue ripples he saw a tree dotted central island but was not sure if this was the location of Suni's cabin as he trotted along the highway's cable fence the lake twisted into the hills more channels and islands were buried back there. He stayed within the solid white breakdown lane all the way up the small hill back into town. Once he got to the drugstore, he'd call Nick Conney and see if the court papers were filed against Lambert's. As he reached the top of the hill and viewed the harvested cornfield back to the general store, he thought of how tweeters' low bid sent nervous pings through his stomach. His eyes were fixed on Aunt Amanda's storefront, cut deep within the shadows from the surrounding autumn trees. He slowed and stopped his digital watch, placed his hands on his hips, and breathed rapidly near the dirt road. His aunt and uncle had put 50 years of sweat into that place. Aunt Amanda had kept it running while Uncle Ned was in the service. He came home with a persistent shrapnel rune that limited his mobility, but he still unloaded boxcars and built a respectable supply business. Seeing the clapboards darker in the afternoon shadows, removed the detachment he had experienced in Los Angeles. Even with his deep feelings, it was imperative he sell this store before the creditors found him. He dipped his shoulder, started his watch again, and ran through the unusually warm air back toward town. His pace increased, and maybe out of anger or frustration, he cursed himself for not paying better attention to his personal finances. At a quick clip, he passed dilapidated houses, but didn't think they were beyond repair. New paint, maybe a few pieces of lumber, and a good yard cleaning would bring them back to life. No repairs would be forthcoming for this town without steady jobs and added income. Alan slurped thick coffee ice cream from a milkshake as he waited for Nick on the line. He had reintroduced himself to the aging Albert inside the drugstore and watched closely as the gray-haired Albert scooped the ice cream out of a frozen round paper bucket in the counter freezer. Each scoop was dropped into a silver container, coffee syrup squirted on top, and the heavy cold milk was added. The buzz of the blender motor and the icy thickness in his mouth brought him back in time.
1: Alan, this is Nick. I tried all your numbers. What's going on here, buddy?
0: That's not important.
1: I think it's important. Where are you?
0: I'm away. Okay, I won't go round and round. My secretary said you were inquiring
1: about court papers. Alan, two things. You aren't my only client, and secondly, these things take time to be properly worded and discussed by all of us here. You can't expect this to happen overnight. It'll take some time.
0: Alan held the green and white wax milkshake cup by his side. Don't tell me about time, Nick. You're talking to a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of it. I don't want to hear about all this legal mumbo-jumbo. I know you can make things happen. You have for me in the past.
1: Alan, I want to help you. I think you have something here, but...
0: My life is on the line here. What do
1: you mean your life is on the line?
0: I'm dealing with people who are going to demand money. Nick exhaled. He was smoking.
1: Hence the money and the trust. Alan, are you crazy?
0: He paused and must have taken another drag.
1: There are legal bankruptcy things you can do.
0: I'm not declaring bankruptcy, Nick. Just speed it up as fast as you can, please.
1: Settle and don't stretch it out on the other end.
0: Amen to that.
1: I'd advise you to start liquidating. Everything you have, unless you have something pending job-wise.
0: I'm working on it. Don't you think you're panicking? Alan asked slowly. Where are you? You sound like you're stoned. I'm in God's country, Nick. God's country. Alan set down the receiver. Albert carried a broom through the store and swept the sidewalk. He looked up as Alan imbibed more of the concoction. Well, how was it, Alan? Brings back the old days, that's for sure, Albert. What's the matter? No milkshakes in California? A milkshake, Albert? An honest-to-God milkshake with ice cream, syrup, cold milk, mixed to perfection? Right. Listen, where I live, you bring your car up to the drive-up window. Some teenage girl with an attention span of six seconds takes your order, and a mixture of inert ingredients diced with plastic fillers is thrown out of some machine, capped and stuffed in a bag with a straw that has about as much chance as allowing that goop into your mouth as I do becoming President of the United States. Albert held the broom handle, nodding his head as he laughed. (laughs) I had a shake like that in Boise. Awful. Two sips, and I poured the darn thing down the storm drain. Well, good stuff. Albert turned as somebody called him from inside. Excuse me one second. He leaned the broom handle against the stony wall and headed back inside. Alan finished the drink and threw the cup in the sidewalk waste container. Then he swung his hands around, took the broom handle, and cleared the accumulated sand and small debris from the sidewalk. A car slowed in the street and McGowan's power window rolled down. Ah, you found work real quick, huh? Real quick. Maybe I'll get another milkshake out of the deal, Charlie. What do you think? Yeah, I heard about the tweeters. I think you did the right thing. No need to take outsiders, Milwaukee. McGowan put his hand over his mouth as if he were telling a big secret. Got enough of that right here in town. Talk to you later, Rowan. The window went up as he smiled, and the Lincoln Continental's almost silent engine moved the black car back to a town hall. "'Alan did some more sweeping as Albert appeared outside. "'Well, thanks there, Alan. "'I'm looking for a stock boy in the afternoon once school starts. "'Well, I'll keep that in mind.' "'Albert motioned him toward a bench by the adjacent window, and they sat down. "'You haven't been up here in a long time, have you?' "'We all keep rolling along. "'It's a nice place up here, Alan. "'No big demands. "'I was born here, and I went away for a while.' "'Alan leaned on the bench, his body relaxed from the run. "'Oh, yeah? Where did you go?' Chicago. I sold pharmaceuticals for the big companies, but I came back. They had their agenda. I don't knock them. My agenda is right here. You think you'll sell Amanda's store? I remember when she and Ned had that place buzzing. Sure, just a matter of Hershey getting the right buyer. Yeah, that could take some doing. Maybe. I saw the condition of the houses along the highway. Not a big real estate market, said Alan. Those houses have history. We just had a talk at the Historical Society about those houses. Teddy Roosevelt stayed in the Gatlin house. Which one is that? Oh, it used to have gold paint. Okay, yep. The others were built in the 1840s. One used to be an inn, said Albert, yawning. All oh, those days are long gone. Hey, why not fix them up if they're historical? It's good to preserve things worth preserving. Albert's brown eyes lit up. Hey, that's catchy. I heard you keep spewing out them quotes. No, that's an original, Albert. I want you to come to the next meeting. You're right about those places being fixed up. I'm sure the local hardware store would donate. Well, hold it right there. Pop Braden is probably the cheapest guy in this town. You want to buy lumber paint or supplies, you pay top dollar. He's the only game in town. He's a funny guy. I never could figure him out. I have a theory. What do you mean? asked Albert, turning with a perplexed look. i found that eccentric people are the most vulnerable, Albert. They're usually hiding behind their own personality for some reason you or I will never have to know. I'm going to have to sift that one around for a while. He stood and stretched. Ugh, Time to close the old place. Hey, I love the shake. Yeah, you did when you were a kid, Alan. You and Suni used to save your pennies and end up spinning on the stools as you drank your shakes. She's a good girl, Suni. Sharp. Kept that store going. Nothing gets by her. Alan gazed across the street at the family clothing store. A smile unconsciously took over his face. He looked at his watch. I'm having supper with Suni and her family. Wow, in an hour, I better get going. I'll see you, Albert. Yeah, you have a good time. Alan waved as he started down Main Street toward Nora Pillsbury's rooming house. He had 55 minutes to use the central bathtub, get dressed, and walk over to Suni's house on Hillside Avenue. He jogged past Town Hall, grinned, and realized he was equating going to dinner with the type of pressure usually reserved for the job place. As he ran through the afternoon sunshine, tucked away in this little town in northern Idaho, he had no job, not even a tangent prospect in a sack full of debts. Downsides by RP Fitness. Chapter 9. Nara helped him gather flowers from her garden and kicked Mr. Ackley, an older guy, out of the bathroom. Ackley usually hogged the bathroom anyway. Clutching a flowery bouquet, Alan stepped outside in a red sports jersey, beige pants, and soft bucks. The rich tobacco drifted across the porch. "'Got a date, have you?' asked Jacob, wearing a wide brimmed felt hat. "'Well, a supper date. Nice hat there, Jacob. "'Did you ever get that silver mine material I left on the bed, Alan? "'Required reading when I get back.' He looked into the backyards of the highway houses beyond the ball field. "'Say, Professor, did Teddy Roosevelt really stay at the Gatlin house?' Whole week, 1914, as an ex-president. Well, I'll be. We'll talk about the mine in the morning. Alan started down the walk. Yeah, there'll probably be a quiz. An oral examination, said Jacob from behind. Alan turned at the sidewalk. I see your hearing is still intact. Jacob tilted his hat and Alan moved up Southeast Street, feeling as if he were going out on a first date as a kid. Only this date was with an old friend and her family and her husband's image on that motorcycle remained fixed in his head. He had no objection to motorcycles, but he didn't like people berating kids. Hardy's taxi appeared from a dirt side road, and he tipped his cap. Looking for a ride there, Alan? Nah, just walking to Hillside. Oh, come on, get in. Neither me or the missus charged for less than a mile. How do you make any money? <laughs> I don't. Alan grinned and stepped inside. How long you been doing this? You mean the taxi? asked Hardy, pulling up Main Street. He waved to the firemen in their blue shirts outside the station house doorway next to the movie theater. You guys get to work, will ya? Then he looked at Alan in the mirror. Well, the plant closed, and I put a taxi sticker on the side of the car. This town needs a shot in the arm is what it needs. More like a shot in the ass. Alan waved to Albert, talking to a couple of guys outside the drugstore. All three men waved, and Hardy's blinker sounded. He turned at the post office and drove along a tree-lined spread of houses with long porches. A few people he didn't know waved at the taxi. Hardy was constantly waving. How can you beat this job? Alan's heart pounded when Hardy brought the car to Hillside, and soon his two-story yellow-gabled house came into view. He hadn't been this nervous in a long time. A rear addition was the only noticeable change. During that summer in Berkeley, he spent as many evenings at her parents' kitchen table as soon he enjoyed Aunt Amanda's cooking in the second-floor apartment above the store. Here, Hardy, take something. The taxi driver shook his head. You have a good dinner, and I hope Tug is in there. Alan opened the door. Tug? Good night, Alan. Thanks. Alan glided up the walk and onto the porch. He strolled past a shiny red bicycle and baseball bat and rang the old metal doorbell. Somewhere inside, the buzzer sounded. He glazed through the screen door at the bulky furniture in the front room's green-striped wallpaper. A single oriental rug lay across a urethane wood floor. "'He's here!' one of the kids yelled out. The aroma of a fully-cooked roast wafted through the screen onto the porch as what sounded like a herd of cows rustled to the front door. He saw a skinny girl, a younger replica of Suni, and the boy from the baseball field pointed at him. Hey, you played catch with me. Yeah, I did. Suni, wearing a white apron over her jeans and jerseys, stood in the wide frame opening leading to the kitchen. Come on, Alan, we're almost ready to start the show in here. Ben opened the screen door, and Alan moved inside. Soon he stopped, as if frozen in time, when she caught sight of the flowers. He loved seeing her smile. Alan, they're beautiful. Amanda, get a vase for Alan's flowers. Goosebumps tingled up Alan's arm at the mention of his aunt's name, and the rangy girl romped back into the kitchen. Ben turned to his mother. Mom, Alan played catch with me at the field. I had no idea who he was, and he just wanted to... Alan was a good baseball player, let me tell you. "'You have told us, Mom,' said Amanda as she entered the room with a huge, white-fluted vase. "'We know all about that, Summer.' Alan handed the flowers to her and looked around for her husband. "'I'm sure you've both heard Alan and Suni's stories until you wanted to gag.' "'We feel like we already know you, Alan,' said Amanda, "'except you look pretty old for a ten-year-old.' Suni swung her nose near the flowers as Amanda passed back into the kitchen. "'Come on, Alan.' Can I get you a beer, drink? Yeah, beer's fine. Alan moved across the Oriental and caught sight of a gallery of pictures, mostly of the kids and a few candids of Sunny and Tug. But none of them posed. No wedding pictures. He passed into the kitchen, a spacious room with a dozen white cabinets and a double kitchen sink, along with a steamy electric stove from years ago. Soon he swung a cold amber bottle laden with condensation from the new GE side-by-side and poured the chilled beer into a tall mug. She placed the mug in Ellen's hands. Cheers! Cheers, he said, lifting the mug and took a sip of full Pilsner beer. Good beer. Imported? Yeah, she said, lifting the pressure cooker from the stove. Imported from Dave's Package Store on Center Street. That far, huh? He saw her grin as she discombobulated the pressure cooker top. Alan never understood how those things worked without blowing up. So, you put old Hershey to the test today, hey? I would say he was sufficiently rattled. Soon he poured the fresh beans into a large bowl and turned down the temperature on the boiling corn. Alan took another sip of beer. Soon he wiped her brow and asked Amanda to fill the water glasses. Alan, I hate to be a purveyor of doom, but Tweeter may be the best offer you get. We're in the middle of the boonies up here, and that store, well seen better days. Then we have to get someone up here who likes the boonies, Suni. She nodded as she thought. I'm trying to think of something that rhymes with Alan. Island, said Amanda. How is your island? Suni handed a potato masher to her daughter. Amanda rolled her eyes, but moved toward the wide aluminum pan and began mashing. Suni lifted the slow cooker and then checked the roast. The island is still there, except we have a new A-frame. The cabin was falling over. In fact, it did partially collapse. Now we need a new boat, said Ben, as he moved back into the room and sat at the table. The engine sputters. Well, your father was supposed to fix it, said Suni. Fat chance. My husband works round the clock. He always has cars to paint. Alan nodded and tasted the beer again. He wondered why the guy wasn't home at night. So I've been looking into your store windows since I got here. It looks viable. I'm doing all right. We're having a good year. Must be small potatoes to someone who's at the top of the corporate ladder. Business is a lot more simple than people think. If you have the right goods and service to your customers, you're golden. It's really that simple. Suni lifted the succulent, steamy roast onto a ceramic platter. You need help with that, Suni? I got it. I got it. Yeah, that's where you used to yell when a pop fly was hit to us. You will know, we'll have to go out to that old field, the swimming hole, all those places you're forgotten. I had forgotten. Alan, there are some things that won't be forgotten. Alan bowed his head at the table. He probably hadn't heard Grace for a meal since he was last in Berkeley, Nor had he tasted a homemade meal in such great proportions. Soon his mother, a small white-haired woman, who didn't say much, sat between Ben and Amanda. Alan thought Melba was more outgoing and vibrant so many years back. Now she talked in short sentences, longing for the old days when the plant was still in town and everyone had work. After the meal, with Melba planted in front of the den TV, the kids went outside into the neighborhood. Alan dried the dishes as Suni washed. She handed a large platter to him, and he swabbed the dish towel along the smooth china surface. Your aunt used to tell me you headed off to school. Yeah, I went to USC and got an undergraduate in economics and an MBA at UCLA. Oh yeah? I got a GC from BHS and a PS from IC. Alan, holding the platter with both hands, laughed. Graduate certificate from Barclay High School and... He held up his index finger and thought. Pink slip from international circuits. Pretty sharp guy who never could beat me at Monopoly. Alan set down the platter and she handed the glasses to him one by one. You know, I don't think I ever did beat you at Monopoly. Those games, along with Pachisi and Checkers, were reserved for rainy days. Kenny Baines could play Monopoly. used to get those damn railroads and green properties. Now he's got the last two sides of the boards. You're beautiful children. Thank you. They're both different. Ben is very active, as you saw at the ball field. That's funny. You're in town a couple of hours and you're playing ball with my son. Now Amanda is what we call a teenager. I can try and steer her in the right direction, but she seems lost. Look her up in ten years. She's in a time warp. Alan wiped another plate and looked into her green eyes. Gee, Suni, it's really good to see you again. I'm glad you came back. She looked to the side window. A motorcycle's roar grew louder and the sound blasted into the kitchen before the engine was cut. Sunny's eyes tightened as she pushed her lips together. An unusually heavy man in a black cut-off T-shirt opened the back screen door and set his red and white plastic cooler on a side table. Tug, this is Alan. Ah, the prodigal son returned. He stroked his brushed mustache and his dark, bloodshot eyes swung toward Alan. You here in town long? Till I sell my aunt's store. <laughs> Good luck. Place is a dump. Tug headed for the refrigerator and yanked out a beer bottle, chugging it before he wiped his mouth with his forearm. It worked 14 hours today. I busted my arse. He gripped the bottle, moved into the room in front of the parlor, and grabbed the remote off the table. The TV flickered as he removed Melba's program from the screen and channel surfed to the football game. A few moments later, Melba shuffled out and announced she was heading upstairs. She started up the kitchen staircase and disappeared around the narrow corner. Tug turned up the game. Tug built up the auto body. He's a good painter, said Suni, continuing to wash the dishes. Does detail work, too, for the kids with hot cars. What about you, Suni? She looked up briefly, but continued with the dishes. Outside, the kids were playing hide-and-go-seek with the other neighborhood kids. You never wanted to leave? Well, I went to San Francisco once and stuffed myself at that chocolate factory, and then I got mixed up on the Golden Gate Bridge and lost my wallet in the hotel room. They get your credit cards? No, I pay cash for everything. You don't have any credit cards? None. Cash works fine for me. They still do take it at most places, Alan. I take that back. We do have a store credit card for accounting purposes, mind you. Oh, of course. Alan wiped quicker cringing as he thought of what he owed, but more about what Suni might think of as all-consuming debt problem, as well as his being fired. "'Hey, quiet out there!' yelled Tug as he leaned into the dense scream, exposing his flabby hips and the beginning of his buttocks. "'Trying to watch the game! Just shut up or I'll tan you hide!' Alan did not want to make eye contact with Suni and felt badder about her husband's belligerent attitude." She handed him the large aluminum potato pan and was smiling as if Tug had said nothing. Tomorrow when I come over to see Mrs. Hennessy, you and I are going to check out two things, the old baseball field and the swimming hole. What do you say? I say you can always go back. He finished drying the pan, glanced toward the den, and then set the pan carefully on the counter. just have to find your way. Let us consider a quote from Thomas Wolfe, who wrote, You can't go home again. You can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and fame, back home to places in the country, back home to old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time, back home to the escapes of time and memory. Where I disagree with Wolf is that you can go back to snippets whether it be in places or especially people. One more quote before I board that plane. Though I know I'll never lose affection for people and things that went before. I know I'll often stop and think about them. In my life, I love you more. As much as Alan loves the rural countryside and the slow down pace of Barclay, Idaho, it's SUNY, like it says in that quote from Lennon and McCartney, it's SUNY that he loves more. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 10. Hershey promised two more prospective clients would take a look at the store. The first woman, a local lady who used to own a toy store on Main Street, did not make a ready offer. She always liked the store and, like most people in town, was friends with Aunt Amanda. If people would buy toys from the local merchants like they used to instead of that big toy mart past Cornerville... Hershey erupted from behind one of the support posts, and he moved out with both arms and mouth moving at the same rapid clip. Mrs. Ellis! Mrs. Ellis! A little advertising in the Gazette! Perhaps a radio ad at a Carnival station! Hershey, there has to be a reason to get them up here. Oh, Price! 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 Alan rolled his eyes at Mrs. Hennessy and then whispered in her ear, "'Takes more than price to win a steady customer.' "'Sometimes I wish Hershey would put a lid on it.' "'What was that, Mrs. Hennessy? asked Hershey from up front near the window. "'She said, you've lit the fire, now let Mrs. Ellis decide.' "'Oh, okay, thank you, Alan.' "'Come on, let me help you back to your car, Mrs. Ellis,' said Alan. "'Hershey planted his feet with folded arms and clenched his teeth. "'Alan!' "'Now go get yourself a Coke or something, Hershey. Relax. I'll be right back.' He brought Mrs. Ellis across the front porch and back to her old red sedan. I remember shopping in your store when I was here that summer. Yes, you wanted baseballs and magic kits. Yeah, I thought I was quite the magician, until I tried to pull Kenny's brother Tom's rabbit from a hat and it took off down Main Street. I don't recall that incident. Just as well, Mrs. Ellis. You call her as you are. Feel free to call me at Nora Pillsbury's if you have to. And don't feel pressured into anything. Sometime, Hershey should just padlock his... You have a nice day now, Mrs. Ellis, and I'll talk to you later. She started the huge machine and Alan shut the door. The ripe gas mixture mixed with the humid October air as she backed around the lot and headed to the highway over the tracks. Hershey smoked a cigarette on the porch. Hey, it's bad for your health, Hershey. Alan, what are you trying to do to me? He followed Alan back inside the store. Mrs. Hennessy winked at a grinning Alan with Hershey still in pursuit. Just leave the real estate to real estate people. You're being too nice to these people. The way I look at it, Hershey, is either it works for them or it doesn't. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a friend to call in Los Angeles. Alan started for the back room as Hershey continued. Then why don't you just take a lunch break when Dave comes in? This is a perfect place for his liquor store. Yeah, until the first train comes by and knocks the bottles off the shelf. Alan heard no reply and headed straight for Aunt Amanda's desk. He picked up the phone. He spent the next 15 minutes charging his calls verbally since he was speaking into a rotary phone and finally tracked down Brian during lunchtime at Salinger's bar. Brian's voice reflected the wild atmosphere inside the establishment. Alan easily pictured the patrons packed against the bar and booths for lunch. Well, if this isn't the lost soul checking in from parts unknown. Good morning, Bry.
1: A.B., I won't even ask where you are, but Melinda is frantic.
0: Oh, why is that?
1: She's been in Texas and wondering where you are and why you haven't called her new voicemail I gave you.
0: Well, she wasn't too worried when she left Palm Springs, was she?
1: Panic move when you took the gas pipe.
0: Oh, aptly put. Listen, I need you to do me a favor. I need all my mail forwarded to Nick Conti. If you could... Alan,
1: I don't even know where you are. I've had a few people asking me about you. First, I should be able to tell them where you are and how you are going to pay them.
0: I left some money aside. It's not that simple. These things take time.
1: (laughs) Roscoe doesn't care about time. They'll track you down, Alan. I'm not
0: going to have them coming after me. I guess that's what friends are for. Never mind. Maybe I can do it from here. Goodbye, Brian. Brian had already hung up. Alan stared out the dirty window toward the train tracks and rubbed his eyes. He needed to phone blitz every company regardless of salary and start working again. And he was going to have to listen to Nick's advice about selling off his assets. Without money coming in, things would eventually close around him. When Alan heard the railroad crossing signals at the highway, he set down the phone. He was getting nowhere calling companies, and Hershey was nervous about him hanging around when the new client arrived. He cupped his hand as he ran toward the clock. "'Mrs. Hennessy, if, uh, i he- "'I'll tell her you stepped out to watch the train, and I'll be at the ball field. Thanks.' Alan rushed out the back bay door and leaped off the dock into the yard. He could hear the locomotive rumbling as it neared the lumberyard and railroad station across the highway. Quickly he jogged around front. The mammoth orange and black diesel had just crossed the highway and cars were backed up behind the crossing gates. The ground under him shook. The whistle blew at the crossing and the mighty train, as tall as trees, cut a swath through the quiet, humid air. The engineer flipped his cap. Alan waved, as did some of the passengers heading north. A couple of kids gave him the peace sign. Behind the rear railing, a man read a magazine as the last car shot by. The train shrunk into the hills. The bells grew silent at the highway. The gates went up, and traffic resumed. The empty, decrepit station was a constant reminder that Barkley didn't warrant a stop. He thought back as he walked to the dirt road how the abandoned station across the street once teemed with people. Without the plant, the town was ruined. Who would want to invest up here now? Through the clump of trees up the road, a group of kids played ball as a horn sounded. Soon drove her chrome-plated blue pickup down the dirt road. A dust cloud followed the truck as she waved out the driver's side window. She pulled up to the porch, cut the engine, and opened the door. I saw you watching the train. I was at the crossing. Hershey stuck his head out the window. Hey, Soonie. Any luck there, Hersh? Go on a nice long walk together. Talk about old times before Dave gets here. Oh, you playing real estate salesman again, Mr. Sackett? She asked, looking up. I just think people should decide in their own good time. Sometimes you need to speed up the process, said Hershey, pretending to shove the porch air. You want to see the old swimming hole or the baseball game? Alan looked across the highway and studied the old red tiles atop the station. Actually, Suni, I'd like to walk down by the old station. Sounds good to me. She turned back to Hershey, now smoking a cigarette. He's out here, Hersh. Alan liked the feel of his sneakers against the stone and the sand, and alternated glances between Suni and the station. In her baggy green shorts and faded top, she stood about even with his shoulders, about the same proportion to his height as when they were ten years old. You know, I was doing a lot of thinking when I was out here this morning. I thought I saw smoke rising out of that head of yours. What were you thinking about, Alan? Oh, the station and the store. He stepped over the steel rails where the tracks dissected the dirt road. At the highway, he gently glided her across but quickly removed his hand. They crossed the tracks, cutting across the asphalt. See, the station and the store are more related than you think. If the owner of that store could get the train to stop at Barclay, they might have a shot at doing some business. Well, that's true, but why would you want to stop at Barclay? The store, it's as plain as the nose on my face. It is? She walked along the sand-crushed stone road to the station and pondered his remark. He looked in her eyes as she nodded. I could swear you know what I'm talking about, Suni. No one else would be on the same wavelength. So you're saying... If the so-called owner of the store advertised and stocked the store properly, it might draw in people on the train. And by car. Alan attempted to pull a piece of weathered plywood off the station window. Under the archway between the two sections, remnants of campfires inside the structure reminded him of a war zone. The wonderful ornate oak moldings were spray-painted and chipped away. He caught her figure, backlit against the sunlight, and her bright eyes brought him back to a time that was far away. Although he had never thought much about her during the years since he left Barclay, an odd nurturing feeling, like the unusual warming breezes rolling into town over the western mountains, now filled his heart. I don't think you want to sell that store, Alan Sackett. He furrowed his brow and wanted to move closer, but he remained near the archway. Maybe not, but I have to sell it. She had the same longing look in her eyes. While some things are better left unsaid, I'm only up here until I do sell it. She wandered slowly from the archway where the benches used to grace the beautiful varnished moldings, and she had the widest smile on her face. Her moist eyes seemed to pierce his thoughts. If you could, in theory, mind you, do something with that store, Mr. Sackett, what would you do? Alan produced a quick smile. (laughs) What would I do? Yeah, because Alan Sackett, as the years went by up here and that store fell into decline, I thought about the same thing. I dreamed about what I might do to save it or resurrect it. That store means more than just a building. Last night, after Tug went up to bed, you talked about all the work your aunt and uncle put into that store. Not only that, it represented a simpler time when things made sense, when people made sense, when everything was right with the world. They embraced in unison and kept their arms locked as if they had both lost something special that could only be recaptured within each other's touch. Alan took her hand and led her through the arch and pointed across the highway to the faded red building beyond the tracks. I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd go into that back room and I'd pull everything outside into the back lot. I'd separate the paint from the brushes, the boards from the nails, and I'd take every piece of that stock I could use to fix the store up. Those buckets with red paint dripped all over the label. Yeah, that's it. Dip in the brush and cover that faded mess and have those deep red clapoids just the way we remember it. And I'd spend money on the sign, get it gold and black, give it that rustic look. Exactly, said Suni, as if she had thought about the scenario long ago. And inside, I'd clear the place out. You would? Sure. With those extra boards, put in a new floor on the mezzanine and coat it, too. Rewire the place, upgrade the phone system, and put it in a modern office upstairs. Away from the customers. They'd get used to that old crank foam. And pay for it, of course, in the lobby. And we'd add a tad of stained glass. She smiled. For that quaint feeling you get when you walk inside, past the player piano and the music box. Yeah. And sell CDs of both. I'd have a wide range of music, always playing from a floor model radio in the mezzanine where the kids and adults would be able to crank up the old phonograph and listen to 78s. You know, when I was 13, I was alone on the island in the old cabin. I spent an afternoon just playing those old records. Tears welled in her eyes. All that stuff from World War I in the 20s. That was the last time I listened to it. You could sell that stuff in the store. I would, and I'd add on out back, an area just for antiques with a 60% markup or more, depending on what the market might bear. Soon he sat on the exposed cinder block wall. I baked things, had the place smelling of potpourri and fresh cookies from the oven, candy and an assortment of coffees. Alan placed his sneaker on the wall and balanced his arms on his prop knee. He looked into the puffy clouds as he spoke. The imports would be stuffed along with furniture on the mezzanine. Rows of imported crafts and goods bought for nothing. I know where to buy. And the people getting off the train in the station, SUNY would flock over. Their wallets open and their credit cards swiping into the card machines. The dollars lined all the way up to Kenny Baines' office downtown. And how, Mr. Sackett, do we get them here? Fix up the station? Nope, that will come. The ads will bring them in. Full-spread glossies and a website. We'll lure them in. I'm sure you'd be involved in some small way also, Soony. Alan closed his mouth, wet his lips a few times, and did not say anything more. She looked through the archway toward the lumberyard. He continued to stare at the clouds and realized he was only dreaming. Roscoe and his creditors would be demanding payment. They had to sell the store.